The practice of being seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. This is a conversation with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships, and relationships shape stories. This is Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. And this is Marisa Gowdy, writer and storytelling coach for healers. And this is The Practice of Being Seen. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Today's guest is Eva Tenuto. She's a storyteller, stigma buster, culture shifter, and lover of truth. Eva is the co-founder and executive director of TMI Project, a nonprofit organization offering empowering memoir workshops and performances through which storytellers become agents of change by divulging the parts of their stories that they usually leave out. In the last seven years, Eva has brought TMI Project from her living room to a host of performance spaces, high schools, colleges, detention centers, mental health facilities, theaters, and the United Nations. Eva is the editor and director of multiple solo shows, one of which has been awarded Best Comedic Script of 2014 in the United Solo Festival. Her essays have appeared in assorted anthologies and at longreads.com. Welcome, Eva. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Eva, I'm so happy you're here. I first met you last March when I signed up for your TMI workshop on a whim. Yes. And I had no idea what I was getting into. That's probably good. It was amazing. (laughs) It was one of the most transformational experiences that I have been through. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. It was um, an opportunity to sit down with a group of maybe 10 others Mm -hmm. and dive into those stories that you don't ever tell and write them together, get feedback constantly, amazing, like laser feedback from you and Sari, and then get up on stage and perform that story. Mm-hmm. And it certainly lit a bug inside of me, like something that I, I want to do it again and again. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> and that happens often, you know, that once you get started, you want to do it over and over again because it feels so good. It feels it's so, so liberating. good. And I noticed, you know, I, I'm sure I'm not alone in noticing this, but so many of the stories that were shared are shame stories. Mm-hmm. Like that is a, it's called TMI for a reason. There's, yes. tell us a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit about those pieces of how this all came together for you. Sure. Well, I, we identify the TMI parts of the stories as the part of the story that we normally leave out because we're too ashamed or embarrassed to tell it. So it's a very intentional kind of TMI. Um, Just to help everybody in case they're thinking acronym, wait, what? too much information. Yeah. The too much information parts of the stories, the parts we usually don't share. Um, and you know, there are so many different versions of the backstory behind TMI project, depending on which, which route we go. One of them is that I had directed the vagina monologues a couple of years in a row for a local nonprofit organization. And we did it the first year and raised a lot of money. So they asked us to do it again. We did it the second year and raised a lot of money. So they asked us to do it again. The third year, they asked us to do it again. And I said, we're a little vaginaed out at this point. Is it okay if we tell our own stories instead? And they agreed. And so the, the women who had been a part of that original cast sat together in my living room 
I knew they all had stories that they had buried deep inside them that they wanted to tell, that they were really dying to tell, actually. Some of them had written memoirs that had been published, some that had not been published. There was a woman who wrote a one-woman show that had never been developed before. There was another woman who had been working on a monologue that she had never performed before. So there were all of these stories that were like growing inside and needed an outlet. And so it was kind of perfect that the timing came together and we had that, that platform to be able to perform them. Um, but as we were sitting in the living room and getting closer and closer to the performance date, and we were no longer just talking about vaginas anymore, we were talking about a whole bunch of different things. We were like, what are we going to call ourselves? What is this new thing that we're doing? And Joan Morgan, who's a pretty well-known author, um, said, what about TMI? What about too much information? That's what we're doing here. We're all telling the too much information parts of our stories. And so that's what we went with. And um, I'm glad we did. It caught on. And and that was how long ago now? That was almost to the day seven years ago <sighs> that we did the first performance. It was on February 19th, 2010. Um, I know because the anniversary just passed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I knew we were on to something special before the women stepped on stage. But then when I saw them out there and I was backstage and I could hear the audience responding and I was watching them kind of change before my eyes, you know, like that feeling that you have, yeah. the before and after of just getting lighter and your shoulders moving back a little bit and breathing a little bit more deeply and just coming into yourself in this new way because you're no longer holding on to this thing that's been keeping you imprisoned. like. With these shame stories, and we can talk about this more later, but um, we have this idea of how people are going to respond to them. And we have this idea about how we're going to be received. And almost always we think it's going to be judgment. And so we don't tell anyone. And then the only one who's reflecting and processing is ourselves. And it's usually a younger version of ourselves who doesn't have very good analytical skills or is kind of trapped in that space from when they went through the experience. And when we air it out in front of others and then the audience responds, this was when I really saw, I was like, oh my God, I've been doing theater since I was a little kid. I've never seen the audience react this way before. They reacted, it was like the whole audience got cracked open. And I went out, went out into the theater after and talked with people and people were crying and laughing and open and hugging and um, then I heard all of these stories about what happened for weeks after the show was over. You know, my husband and I talked on the way home. We talked about things we never would have talked about before. Or my daughter's father died four years ago and she's been going down the wrong path and I've been trying to get her help and she's been so resistant. But then she saw those women on stage telling their stories and she became brave enough to share hers too. Now she's in therapy. You changed the direction of our family. And I never even met that woman. Like we had no... No touch point with that family, but they had a touch point with the stories. So it was like this rippling, contagious truth-telling that was happening. That's, and I knew we needed to do it again. That stories became this, this way of connecting, of unifying. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that when one person is brave enough and willing to open up and share the very human part of their story other people want to be able to do that too because we're all we all want to so badly and we just need the permission like you can do that it's okay and you're n the thing that you think is going to happen that's absolutely the scariest is not the thing that's actually going to happen we all want to be seen yes and then when we can see somebody else 
it, it lights that part of us up where we go, well, if I can see them, then maybe somebody can see me. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's still scary for each one of oh. us, regardless of how much we know that, you know? Yeah. Well, I think you, you hit that before when you were talking about how we, we hold ourselves back and we don't share those stories, but we're really criticizing ourselves that whole time. Right. Yeah. And so then the other thing that happens that's so beautiful to watch over and over and over again is that when someone does have the courage to go out there and share that really tender, personal story, and instead of being met with, oh my God, you're so disgusting. I can't believe you've lived with that your whole life. You should be so ashamed of yourself. All the things we've been telling ourselves, instead they're met with, oh my God, no one has ever shared my story before. No, I've never heard anyone brave enough to share my story before. And you're so inspiring and thank you so much. You made me feel like I wasn't alone. Like that's the message. It's the complete opposite of what you're anticipating. As a therapist sitting in and witnessing that process, there was so much transformation that happened from the first workshop till the performance in terms of how each participant looked at their own story. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think is a real benefit of writing in group instead of in solitude. Because yes, Sari and I do give feedback and um, are listening for certain things, but there's also feedback that comes from the group mm-hmm. and it brings in, the, the consciousness is deeper because there are more people there, right? Yeah. So there are all these different perspectives that are chiming in and asking questions and saying, I don't understand that one part. Can you explain a little more about that? Or um, I really want to hear more about the relationship with your mom or whatever it is that people want to hear more of. The curiosity comes forth. Right. And um, if the space is created to be a very safe one and comfortable and trusting and everyone feels like they can ask those questions respectfully and give feedback and input, your story is deepening from so many different perspectives. And I think that that makes a huge difference. You know, when we're writing on our own, we can only come to it with our own questions and thoughts. So I think the workshop experience is really valuable in that way. And I'm hearing there has to have been an evolution from your first iteration where women were already performers and they'd been on stage before to now you're pulling people in who've probably never stood on a stage, never mind telling their story, but just in general to have somebody stand up there and be seen by an audience. That mm-hmm. in and of itself has to be such an experience to hold for them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, all and- the women in the first rendition were performers or had, had at least had some performance performing experience even if it was just performing in the vagina monologues for two years earlier um and now we work with a lot of people who have never ever stepped foot on stage and you know after we had done it for a couple of years just with the general public and we saw that the transformational impact was pretty consistent we we realized very quickly we need to start a community outreach initiative and really intentionally work with communities who don't often have a chance to tell their stories or be heard And so since then, we've worked with, we have an ongoing workshop with the Mental Health Association of Ulster County, where we work with adults who have mental illness. We work with um, domestic violence survivors and at-risk teens and uh, the LGBTQ community and veterans and a whole bunch of people. I mean, the thing about that is that every population has some message that they've received that tells them you shouldn't air out your dirty laundry or what happens at home stays at home or any of those kinds of messages. So really every population Everybody. works. Um, 
but a lot of people have never had experience doing it. And it still makes for excellent entertainment and theater because we don't have to act, right? Like they're our own true stories and they're scary to tell. So there's so much emotion that's happening as real people are telling their real stories that I find more riveting than most theater that I see. So I still really love it from even just a purely entertainment perspective. Um, seeing people with no experience can sometimes be even more entertaining mm. because mm. it's so raw. It's the rawness of it. You know, and that, that brings me into this role that you play where you're the container. You help this transformation happen, but you hold it not only in the workshopping of it and in the editing of it, and in getting people on the stage, but also in the curating of how all the different performers go on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many different roles that you play in that process. Can you mm-hmm. speak a little bit to, to what, that ex- what that personal experience is for you to, to have all of those different roles? What, what was it? The story? Storyteller, story holder, story healer. Right. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But I feel like you, you play all of those. I feel like I, I'm getting the opportunity to have a job where I get to use all of the things that I'm meant to be doing. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the luckiest woman in the world to be able to do those different things. Um, I have a theater background. I have a teaching background. Um, I now that I've been doing this for seven years now have a writing background. That was not my intention, but it's what's happened. Um, And I don't know if you remember, but one of the things that we tell people in the beginning is that we're not therapists. We're not here to offer a therapeutic experience, although that's probably what's going to happen as a side effect of learning how to tell a story well. What we're here to do is teach you how to tell a good story and find one that you need to tell the most. And we will not let you get on stage and read your journal to a bored audience. That is something we will absolutely not let happen. Because one of the important things is that people get the experience of being heard powerfully. So we want to craft this story so that the audience is on the edge of their seat the whole time and really actively listening. Some people have never had the experience of being listened to in that way before. Um, so there's, there's a lot of collaboration that happens in terms of taking the free rights and the stories that come through the participants and then helping them craft them into really well-executed monologues that are performed for the stage. But there's also some resistance that comes up in that process. How do you know that? I have a sense of it. <laughs> Might have been a... Shown up a little bit in me. Oh, <laughs> I didn't hear anything about any of that. You just said this was the easiest thing in the world. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, that's very common. There's a lot of resistance, especially in the editing portion of things, because you're... And I just went through this. I just had a piece edited, and I was resistant the whole way through, and it was really challenging for me. No one's exempt from that being a challenging process, I don't think. I'm reflecting, though... In terms of the therapeutic work I do, <clears throat> resistance shows up all the time. Uh-huh. And I always talk with my clients, I talk about it, especially in like the very first session, because I want to have that conversation before the resistance is actually in the room. But one of the things we talk about is usually when that resistance is showing up, you're right at a growth edge. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's, a, there's a transformation that hasn't happened yet that's about to happen. And I feel like having gone through your process and having been a part of that resistance, 
that feels like what it was for me too. Like Mm -hmm. there was, there was this, um, you were bringing me to a place that I couldn't have gotten to on my own Mm -hmm. and it was uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that when we're editing our own work, we want to edit it in a way that feels the most safe. This is the way that I feel the most safe and most comfortable sharing my story. Mm-hmm. which also means it's not the most vulnerable and it's not the most revealing and it's not the most interesting because mm-hmm. those are the parts that we want to know and they're the parts that we need to connect with one another. And so when we're editing in a way that makes it the most vulnerable, the most revealing and the most intimate, there's a lot of resistance. Yeah. And, but that's, that's exactly why it's the edge of of growth because then you get brave enough to go to that scary place and then have that great experience. Um, I think it's a really important part of the process. Yeah. You know, I, I remember one of my resistances was there were certain, um, certain characters throughout my story that I was worried about their interpretation of things. Mm -hmm. And you had encouraged me, well, go ahead and reach out to them and let them know that this is going to be in there and ask for their permission. Mm -hmm. And that was, relationally, that was transformational. Yes. You know, that, that I had said, like, so I'm, I'm doing this thing, and I'm, I wrote the story, and I'm going to give this performance, and there's a piece about you, and this is what it says, and is it okay if I say this on stage? Mm-hmm. And to get that feedback, I mean, relationships have reshaped because right. of that ask. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I'm sure that that's a, that's a snowball effect. Yeah, it's, it's the, um, the work that happens off the stage that makes the transformational experience so powerful for you in your own life, outside of the workshop, outside of the performance, but just in your relationships. Absolutely, that's, that's happened to me a lot of times. I mean, we used to, we used to tell stories at every, with the workshop. So every time we taught a workshop, we performed also. And it just got to be too much work. You know, we were teaching too many workshops to have to craft everyone else's stories and direct and then also come up with something really good each time. It was too much. But we've, I've done a lot of monologues and had to have a lot of conversations with lots of different family members. Um, and one story that I wrote that got published in an anthology ended up putting my mom and I in therapy together. Hmm. Um, and we worked through a lot of stuff as a result of telling that story. And it changed the nature of our relationship for the better. Yeah. But we had to we had to be able to talk about some of the things that we had not talked about ever before. And that's what your work does. It gives your participants the permission to have those conversations about the things that they typically aren't talking about. Right. And sometimes they go well and sometimes they don't. I think that on the part of the participant, they have to be willing or in a position in their life where they want to open up the mess. And if they don't want to, then that's not what they should do. We never encourage people to do anything that feels too uncomfortable, right? Right. Like that's such an individual decision because we can't guarantee what will happen. Like things worked out well with my mom because she was willing to do the work. But I've seen other people open up cans of worms with family members or people in their lives who are not willing to do the work and relationships have crumbled. But they weren't doing very well to begin with, you know? Mm. So it, I think it really is a matter of where you are and what you want to open up and what you want to work on. Yeah. Mm. Now, just to loop back a little bit, 
to the editing process. Yeah. And you and I have some commonalities and that my work is to help people edit their work. Mm-hmm. Um, especially I work with therapists who are trying to figure out which stories to tell. And it's a lot about their blogging and what they want to put in their books. And one of the big first questions is, well, can I say that? What parts of me should I share? Because certainly Rebecca can speak to the professional ethics that come in most strongly for people in the, in the psychotherapy community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it just feels important to draw that that beautiful line between the space you're creating and knowing it's a very intentional space where TMI is invited, encouraged, and necessary, mm-hmm. and knowing that this is what this stage is for, and this is what this process is for, and for people who are listening at home and thinking, okay, well, how does, you know, should I be saying more myself? Should I be sharing more? Is that the right thing to do? And just kind of holding space to say that there's different venues, there's different places to share in different spaces where, um, you'll want to show up with something different and knowing you're supporting people in a way that's encouraging that um, when it's the right story to tell. Right. And, you know, that's a good point. And I think even within the context of our workshops, um, there are different levels of sharing in different spaces. So when we have a closed-door workshop with the 10 people that you were talking about in the beginning, Rebecca, and we've all agreed that what happens in this room stays in this room, we share a lot more with one another than we share on stage for the general public. Um, And what we do is we offer people, write everything here, get it all out here, and then we'll help you edit it in a way that makes you feel comfortable sharing with the general public. Mm. Sometimes people feel comfortable sharing with the general public and risking, okay, I don't know exactly who's gonna show up in the theater tonight, but I'm, I'm comfortable sharing this particular version of the story with the 200 people who show up tonight, but I don't want it posted on YouTube, right? Because <laughs> then it's shared with who knows who. Right. But then a lot of other people will go the extra step and say, no, I feel free of this now. I don't feel like I have anything to hide anymore. Share it with whoever you want. I'm fine with it. And they may have never thought that they would have felt that comfortable the first day that they walked in the door. Um, we have a lot of people who sign up and say, I want to take the workshop, but I don't want to do the performance. Is that okay? And yes, that's okay. You can take the workshop and just do the writing portion of the work. And out of, so I think we've worked with 1,200 participants at this point. I think two or three people have not performed, but a lot more than that have said, I don't think I want to. (laughs) I'm raising my hand. I Uh think I was one of them. Yes, I think you were too. One of the things that happens is that the group of 10 people get so close to one another and there's such a bond that's get, that gets created and everyone wants to have that experience together. They want to go through the show together. They want to share their stories together and go through that last part of the process together because they're, they're now a group. They're like a little TMI family. Um, and I think most people feel very relieved that they took that extra step because there's so much that happens as a result of, of sharing it on stage. Yeah, that's a really pivotal moment. Yeah. And, you know, I, I keep thinking about how the power of, of these TMI performances, they, they are so powerful and they can change one person's perspective so much about them, like the performer, but also the audience, right? And so there's this like, it, it's like a grassroots movement. It's like changing the world through storytelling. One story at a time. One story at a time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, we really think of it at this point as... Um, 
you know, it is, it is entertainment and it has to be so people will listen. It is a healing um, art form because it does make people feel differently and go through these transformations. It is activism because mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we really try to work on is sharing the stories that don't often get told or shared and giving them a platform to be heard. And um, I think that that also merges so many different passions of mine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel like sometimes one of the biggest forms of activism any of us can take on is busting through the shame that lives inside of us. Mm -hmm. And showing up to listen to yeah. both. Yeah. Yeah, we're working on a project right now called Black Stories Matter. And it's really um, a very intentionally using our platform for activism. Um, you know, how many people say when they hear black lives matter, well, all lives matter. Yes, all stories matter, but we need to shine a spotlight where it needs to be. Yeah. And right now, that's where it needs to be. So we've been doing um, workshops and community outreach and partnering with other organizations. And um, it's the first time that we're intentionally doing a digital campaign alongside the live performance. So people can submit stories on our website. They get um, shared through our social media platforms so that we can really use technology to reach a wider audience and impact more people. There's so many different ways to share stories at this point. So I'm really excited to um, launch this project and see how far it goes. Oh, I'm excited to watch it. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the, the intention and um, just the thought process that goes into how you curate these pieces? Sure. Um, Projects. So it's different depending on what the work is, right? And um, which population we're working with and what initiative. Each initiative will bring, have different issues rise to the surface. So when we're working on this Black Stories Matter initiative, for instance, and we have a diverse committee that gets together and talks about the issues that arise as the work is developing, because they will. If you're working on hard issues, issues will arise and you'll have to hash through the hard parts and be willing to have the messy conversations and the planning of the messy stories that you're going to be performing, right? Like it's all unfolding as you're working out the details. But we had to think about what we wanted the goal of the stories to be and who we wanted to reach. And was it to, I think on the, the poster, it says amplifying voices, raising awareness and taking action. Those were the things that we decided we wanted to be goals for this particular project. And so how do we amplify the voices? That part is easy for us. We create the stories, right? Where do we host it? Is it going to be in a, because our community is inherently segregated and we need to make a choice because there are not that many places where people come together, where black and white communities come together and each feel like that space is their own. Right. So we're hoping that we're going to be able to do this performance more than once because what we would like to do is intentionally integrate our audience and have spaces where communities are coming together and doing active listening and listening to understand rather than listening to respond, mm -hmm. right? Like where we're really being open to just hearing. Um, the first place that we're going to hold this 
is at a a diverse church, but it's predominantly a black church. It's the um, Point of Praise Church in Kingston. And we hope that we will have an integrated audience show up for the performance. We've had a, a very big response so far, so I have a feeling it's going to be full. It's on March 25th. And then after that performance, we hope that we will be able to go to perhaps the old Dutch church or a more predominantly white space and have black audience come in and feel comfortable being there where we can have these these conversations in both spaces. Um, we also talked about how do we get people from communities that might not have the same access to social media, who might not see the messaging in other places. So we've partnered with Citizen Action and they do a lot of door-to-door -door campaigning and they're going to hand out postcards. Oh, that's beautiful. They're going to be at the performance so that if people who are in the audience are inspired to take action after, because that's what we hope to do. We hope that the stories are a catalyst for activism. We're experts in creating stories. We're not experts in political activism. So Citizen Action will be there to sign people up to get involved in activism in the lobby right after the show. So if you want to become more involved and you feel inspired in that moment, there will be an opportunity to do that. I'm really curious about all the other projects that you guys have on your plates. I know you've recently done a retreat at Omega. You have your community events. You have your mental health association groups that you do. You are doing the Black Lives Matters project. What other things are going on behind the scenes? How many projects are you actually working on right now um i don't know what the number is but there's a lot of them, <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> yeah uh we've we're starting to do some more work with film and i think a huge part of our intention going forward is how do we take the amazing content that we're creating and make it accessible to more people yeah um i am a self-proclaimed theater geek and I will never lose that in-person theater community experience. I think it's the the core of what we do but I think that it's a shame for us not to explore these other avenues so that we can take what's happening here in our community and share it with with the world right. Yeah. We have all of these ways of being able to do that now so um I feel like it's it's accordion it's an accordion too though right because I know I performed with you on stage last spring and then this past fall um, in someone's living room I I reread that that piece I had written um, and you're bringing it you know to YouTube and to film and so that same story that the one story that I shared right. you know it became accessible in multiple different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I know that I'm not alone in that. I know that, that this is what your project does. It kind of lives and it breathes and it has this like accordion, you know, it could go really small scale. It could go really big scale. Right. It could, yeah. Yes. And I love that. Like the, um, like the living room reading, like the most intimate you awesome. can possibly get. And then, um, you know, being on the internet and going as wide yeah. as you can possibly go. The living room reading for me was, I think, more transformational than reading on stage. So now I'm going to turn into the interview. Go Tell ahead. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, there was, you know, when I was on stage, there were these bright lights in my face. Mm -hmm. I, I had all this fear in my body that wasn't even about what I was reading, um, but it was the experience of being on stage. Mm -hmm. And in the living room, I was connecting with the people I was reading to, and I was watching their responses. And I got to see where they breathed when I was reading. You know, I got to see where they couldn't look at me. Um, 
those kinds of moments were really transformational. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a really different experience reading in different, in different venues and different environments and the lights are a thing, you know, like you can't see who you're connecting to. And for some people that makes them more nervous and other people, they feel really relieved by it. Like, Oh, thank God. I don't know who's out there, you know? And then the living room reading, that's exactly right. Like they are right there. They're sitting with you. You're in a room together. And we were practically on top of one another for that It was a tiny room. It was tiny. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it's very intimate. And I actually, I love that as well because of that reason, because it's such an intimate sharing of story and that environment. You know, as your organization is growing and changing, and there's obviously, there's more than two sides to it, but there's the storyteller and the process of eliciting the story and going through um, what it takes to get it out. And then there's the process of entertaining and, and engaging an audience. How do you kind of play between those two forces? Is there, is one have more of an emphasis than the other or are they just intimately connected? Because I'm thinking about Rebecca being in the living room speaking and then that small gathering of people who would have heard it and you know felt her breath opposed to the people who might be watching on the internet on the other side of the world there's this you know thinking about that play between storyteller and audience mm-hmm. how does that inflect where you guys are, are are now and where you're going with what you're doing you know, well so to backtrack a little bit um one of the ways that we plan on getting the stories out is through podcast and we're going to start that soon um and i think that's going to be a good medium for us because in the same way you know, when you watch it on video, mm-hmm. I think it does lose something, actually, yeah. um, because you're not right there with the person. But there's something about just the audio. The intimacy. Where you can just be listening, and it feels like the person is speaking to you right there. You're not distracted from having them be separate from you, in a way, um, by watching them with their cards and what they look like and on the stage. Like, it's just a story in such a pure essence And so I think that's going to be a great way for us to um, reach a wider audience and still hold on to some of the intimacy of the of the original performance. But it is it's it's an issue. I mean, any theater doesn't always translate well in other mediums. You know, if you watch a film of a theater production, it really can fall flat. Um, So I think it is it's a challenge for sure. But I definitely think the podcast is going to be a good experience for us one thing we did do um where i think that the film will translate really beautifully is we just documented the entire workshop that we did with the mental health association from the minute people walked in the door until the last class when we followed up after the performance was over and we interviewed everyone in between and we're going to do a 20 minute half hour short documentary Mm -hmm. about the whole process because that's one of the stories that really only the instructors get to see You know, we get to watch people walk in and we see what they're like when they walk through the door. And then we see what they're like six months after the show's over. And the audience only hears the story. They hear the story that got crafted out of that whole experience. But this is a whole other story. It's the transformation that happens throughout the process. It's another inspiring story, I think. And I'm excited to capture that one. Oh, that sounds awesome. And I think you recently did something with the football team too, right? working with the cultural expectations of masculinity with a football team, a high school football team, and documenting that process. Wow. That'll be interesting. 
I, I love the work that you guys are doing, Eva. I think the TMI project is something that certainly locals here in the Hudson Valley are getting to know or, or do know about, but I'm thinking that it's so much bigger scale and it's something that, you know... It's funny, we've worked locally in the Hudson Valley and we've worked with international gender activists from all over the world who performed at the United Nations and not a whole lot in between. (laughs) (laughs) And we might be going back there again this year, but um, it's funny that we've, we've reached like this very large scale um, and have worked very locally. Who needs Connecticut? We have Thailand. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, But we're figuring it out as we continue to grow. I want to go backwards a little bit and talk personally about some of the stories that have impacted you the most, some of your own stories that you have um, allowed yourself to kind of follow the same model with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what have those transformational stories or unfoldings or uncoverings been for you? What have they been like? Not necessarily what the story is, but what, what has happened as a result of both the process that you have brought yourself through, but also as, as this container, as this person who runs this business, this Mm -hmm. TMI project business, where you are this container, how has that experience shaped how you hold that space for others? Yeah. There's a few different questions. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But to start with one, I think that, um, a lot of the things that I went through growing up have been the catalyst for why TMI Project exists. And one of them is that I grew up keeping secrets. And, you know, no one does passion work because it just came easy to them, I don't think. I think we do passion work because we're working out our own our own stuff, right? So um, I've written about this many times. When I was 11 years old, I picked up the phone at the same time that my mom picked up the phone upstairs and she was, um, it was a friend of hers and I all of a sudden was then listening and I was 11. So I was like, I'm going to stay on the phone and hear what they have to say, you know? And, um, the woman said to my mom, Oh, you're never going to guess this, but so-and-so just got reunited with her daughter who she gave up for adoption when she was a teenager. And they just met and they reunited. And my mom said, oh my God, I can't believe you're telling me this right now. I just started looking for my son again. And I did not, we were three girls. I was the oldest. I knew nothing about a son. It was like finding out that my mom was a completely different woman than I had ever met before. Like, what do you, what do you mean? You're looking for your son again. Who, what are you talking about? And so I'm standing there with this phone in my hand now, like the 10,000 pound phone. And I didn't, my mom ended up finding out that I knew, but she felt like my sisters were too young to find out because I was the oldest at Mm -hmm. 11. And so I was the only kid at the table who knew that there was a child missing for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And I grew up with that. And I don't think that it's so much the information that it's what I found out. I think it was the, the act of keeping a secret that was so detrimental. Yeah. So that took shape for me in different forms of addiction. And so when I was young, it was food. And then as soon as I found alcohol, when I was still young at 14, um, 
that was so much more effective that I was like, who needs food? And I, you know, like I didn't need to eat at all anymore. Now I have alcohol and I ended up, um, drinking alcoholically for many years. And I got sober in 2005. Um, and when I got sober, I started to, I was like the exact same uncomfortable 11 year old girl in a grown woman's body. And had to go, I had to backtrack and I had to go through all of the things that I had been burying by running away for so many years. And that was like the origin. That was like where it started from for me. The truth telling. The truth telling. And the, the part that I loved and responded to in recovery was hearing people tell stories. So, you know, I was like, I only have to pay a dollar a day and I get to hear these like outlandish, <laughs> crazy, raw shame-filled stories that no one seems to think are a big deal like it was so um can we go there for a minute yeah like there I'm (laughs) hearing those stories that spoke to you yes because it it was speaking to the part of you that had been hiding right absolutely and the part that I was so ashamed of I didn't want anyone to know that I had a drinking problem. I mean, my friends knew that I drank a lot, but I hid it very well from my family. I was a preschool teacher in Brooklyn. I still had parents fighting to get their kids in my class. Like, I presented well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I did not want anyone to know, so I had to act perfect all the time. And so this was, like, a very new way of, like, letting the mess out and letting people hear what you had to say and also listening, like, really, really listening so that you could learn how to live differently. That's what it was for me. Yeah. Um, And so this has been kind of like this merge of my theater experience. Another important thing I would say is that at that time when I was 11, there were two things that saved me. I got very, very shy. I stopped talking in school. I really isolated. And I think it was my way of just like, I'm going to shut down because if I say anything, I might say the thing I'm not supposed to say. So I'm just not going to say anything at all. And my mom um, could see that I was getting shyer and shyer, and she forced me to go to an acting class when I was 12 and said, you only have to go once, and if you don't like it, you never have to go back again. And I never stopped going. Um, (laughs) It was like I had had no ability still to speak in school, but when I got on stage and I could pretend to be somebody else, I had so much pent-up emotion that I was like, I could do anything on stage. And I ended up going to acting school in New York City when I graduated. It just stuck with me. Like, that became the thing that was really, really healing for me. And also, a teacher in seventh grade had us all keep journals, and she would write in the margins. And we could write whatever we wanted, and she would write little comments on the side. And when I went on to eighth grade, she could see that I was still really struggling. I had admitted in the journal that I was feeling suicidal. Like, there were so many things that I told her. And it was the only place I was telling anyone anything. And she said, if you want, I know you're not going to be in my class anymore, but you can still keep handing in your journal every week. Mm. And I did, all through eighth grade. And then when I went to high school, she said, if you want, you can come back here (laughs) and still keep handing in your journal. And I did for a couple of weeks, and then I was like, I'm too cool to go back to the middle school, you know, Mm -hmm. but I wish that I had because she really was helping me. But I think that those two seeds were planted. Like, I'm writing my story, I'm expressing myself on stage, and then it kind of merged later in life, having the experience with recovery and seeing how healing stories could be. I feel like TMI Project 
brings in so many different experiences from my life, a very personal part of my life. Yeah. And then ripples out in um, such a beautiful way. I think that another part of the process that's so powerful is that you're not just learning how to talk about something that's hard. You also have this finished product at the end that you get to reflect back on. So before the monologue was created, when you think about that thing, you just have the trauma. And it's almost like if there's like a pathway that goes to the memory, it goes straight to the trauma. And when you have the monologue that you feel proud of and people you know people are inspired by, it's almost like it interrupts the pathway. Yeah. And so now you don't go straight to trauma anymore. You have this amazing thing in the middle to hold on to. It becomes a new memory for you. Yeah. And I just experienced that. I knew that that's what was happening, but I just published a story on longreads.com and it was about one of my own childhood traumas, a little bit about what I talked about earlier about finding out about my mom's son, my half brother, um, who I ended up meeting and who ended up coming to a show where my mom performed a piece about being pregnant with him and being pregnant with me. He was in the front row, she was on stage, I was backstage watching. I mean, there are so many ways that this work is healing me while I'm executing it as well, right? Um, And the story goes on to talk about some other things that happened afterwards. It's called Feeling Unsafe in Every Size. Mm-hmm. And I was really terrified to put this essay out into the world, the same way that people who take our workshop are terrified to put their stories out into the world. And I think the two weeks leading up to it, I was an anxious, irritable nightmare <laughs> and felt so bad for my wife, Julie, who was pretty much getting the brunt of all of it. Um, but I just was like so on edge because I was at a growth point, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Had you shared the monologue in in a performance at all, or was this the first time the story was going public? It was the first time the graphic details of a bunch of different stories were going public. So I had I'd walked on the edge. I had shared it in the way that was safe, right? The way that I edited my story was to tell it in a way that felt safe and less vulnerable. And so this was the first time that I was doing it in a way that felt vulnerable revealing connecting like all the things that I just talked about earlier that we do when we edit other people's work was the way that I was presenting the story for the first time so I talked a lot about um the really graphic details of getting bullied when I was younger um and then an experience that I went through with a high school teacher who ended up more or less sexually harassing me through my four years of high school and I was a nervous wreck and the minute it went out, it was like stepping on stage. I immediately felt a relief come mm-hmm. over me. And then as I started getting feedback from other women who had been through similar things and getting emails from people who I had never met before saying, thank you so much for being able to put into words what I still haven't been able to articulate even though I went through something almost exactly the same. Mm. I feel such a sense of relief for you having shared it. I got to have the same experience. And so now for me, I got to feel this viscerally, even though I knew it theoretically from watching everyone else go through it and from going through it myself. This was just a deeper, deeper level for me. 
that when I used to think about those memories, it was like straight back to the trauma. And now I have that essay in between. It's not just a memory. Right. It's something I created. It's a work of art now. It's a message that's out in the world. It's not just that I talked about it in therapy. There's something tangible. You made something. I made something. Yeah. And you made something out of that vulnerable experience. You you reshaped it. Mm-hmm. Right? You You were in control of it in some way. Right. In terms of how you presented it and how you shared it. And it's accessible for feedback, which yeah. is really terrifying you know, and liberating at the same time. Brene Brown yeah. talks about um, the the vulnerability hangover, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that a lot I of people... call peop- it share shame. Share shame. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have share shame? I know. You just felt like you went too far. You'll feel better tomorrow, I promise. Yeah, yeah. that happens in class a lot. Yeah. Do you find that it happens more in class, though, like in the middle of the messy part of the process, than it happens after the actual performance or after the publication of that more held? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In the messy part. Yeah. Absolutely. I think by the time people get to the end, they're more comfortable with the whole idea of being out in the world. I think in the midst of it, when you're still not sure if you want to tell or if you're going to share or if you're going to be brave enough and you're questioning... And don't know where you're going to stand yet. I think that's the most terrifying part of the process. You know what I'm what I'm thinking of is um, a like an inner dialogue that I'm sure I had, and I'm sure I'm not alone in having in the midst of the process. Is my story good enough? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, is the story worthy of getting on stage? Is is this worthy of sharing? But once you've shared it, once you've performed it, once you've published it, it's worthy. Mm-hmm. Like that. That was the moment. It's also such a human thing. I didn't realize until we started doing this work, but I remember when we did the first TMI performance and we were working out of my kitchen and I had one reader after another have these one-on-one meetings with me to rehearse their stories. And each one walked in and was like, oh, my story's so boring. Nobody's going to want to listen to this. It's so boring. I can't believe we're even doing this. And then the next one would walk in and be like, my story's so boring. My story's so boring. Nobody's going to want to listen. And I'm like your mom was an FBI agent in the fifties. Like your story is not boring, you know, or whatever it was that we all tell ourselves that our story is boring or it's, I didn't have it bad enough or I didn't have it good enough or I shouldn't tell this part. All these messages that we tell ourselves, I think to just stay safe, right? Like Mm -hmm. if it's too boring, then I shouldn't tell it and I can just stay safe and quiet. Um, I think also because we tell ourselves our stories over and over and over again in our heads, they are boring to us. I've told my story to myself so many times, but I've never heard your story. So your story that's boring to you is riveting to me. And it's one of the reasons why when people free write, we always say no negative preamble. Don't say anything badly about your story before you get started. And... If you think it's terrible, share it. Don't just share what you're proud of, because if it's terrible, we can hear it and maybe it's not terrible. Or if it is terrible, we can help shape it into something you feel proud of, you know? Um, And it's such an opportunity to witness yourself. I mean, we talked a lot about being seen, but it's about being able to see yourself from a new angle, mm -hmm. right? As soon as you're seeing it on the page, as soon as you're seeing yourself reflected in somebody else's eyes, you're outside of that box, Boring has a very different color, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so much of the 
of all the work of creating art uh, and that difference you mentioned before about this isn't therapy this is that next this is another stage of becoming mm-hmm. yeah. I think there's something that's so powerful that happens when you're in front of the audience too and you get a reassuring laugh at a moment that you weren't expecting it and maybe it's not even funny but it's so relatable that the whole audience erupts and you're like oh oh you all really do know this thing or when everyone in the audience at the same time is like you're like wow it really it it's that being seen thing and knowing that everyone can identify with you at these different moments where you thought maybe people weren't going to be able to relate at all. Because maybe within your own life, within your own experience, with the stories, the way that they're stuck in your heads, you weren't related with. You were, uh-huh. you were mm-hmm. isolated. You were alone. And so this is a moment now where connection is the thing that's happening. Right. And it, maybe it's not the message that you got from your family of origin. Right when they witnessed you going through the thing for the real the first time. And so the connection becomes the healing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that feels like a beautiful place for us to end. Yeah. Yeah. Eva, thank you so much for, for being with us today. We're going to put a whole bunch of links in our show notes, including um, the TMI project and the article that you recently published. Is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with? Um, another you had mentioned earlier, Um, that we had taught recently at Omega Institute and we'll be there again this summer teaching a weekend workshop for women. All of our other workshops are open for men and women. Um, We usually have more women sign up, but men are always welcome. There were a lot of men in the workshop that I had taken with you and they had such a powerful voice. It was, I loved hearing their stories. Yeah, often when people come to shows where there are men telling their stories, I hear over and over again, I've never heard a man talk like that before. Yeah. So I know that something pretty special is happening. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming and visiting with us and yeah. sitting with us here in the office. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. For more great content, check out practiceofbeingseen.com and spread the word by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. Music written and performed by Christopher Ferris and produced at Kidneystone studio.